After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And guys, for our 150th episode this week, we have an amazing interview with super producer Don Carmody. We have covered so many of Don's movies on the show. We're talking Silent Hill, Resident Evil, Shivers, House by the Lake, Porky's, Goon, and my personal favorite, The Surrogate. Oh man, I love The Surrogate. And I get to ask him about it and that was awesome and there is the best story ever attached to how that film got made he tells it it's great he tells so many amazing stories um we're going to talk about Cronenberg we're going to talk about Cinepix we're going to talk about the early time in Canadian film he brought two movies that he wanted to talk about uh Polytechnique and Home Again and we talk about those filmmakers uh both Denis Villeneuve and Sud Sutherland and his writing partner Jennifer Holness we don't really get super deep into them just because our time was limited and he had so many great things to say. Uh, we will probably come back to both of those movies at a later time, but these give really nice insights and little great anecdotes about how they were made, why they were made, and uh, really just great insight in general into Canadian film and why it exists. And arguably, a lot of it would not exist without Don Carmody. So without further ado, here's my interview with Don Carmody. Pretty simple little softball question. You were born in Providence, Rhode Island. You grew up in Montreal, so you've got a pretty unique uh, perspective on the American-Canadian thing. You've been working cross-border for a long time. What do you think marks the difference culturally between an American movie and a Canadian movie? <laughs> culturally, I think it's, you know, for the most part, people pay attention to American commercial movies. They do make uh, art house films and have for a number of years just they can't get through the noise of the big uh, commercial blockbusters very much like how Canadian movies can't seem to get through the noise of uh, American blockbuster movies. So I think there is a love of cinema that's, that's similar in, in both countries. By the way, the Providence, Rhode Island, uh, I was born there because my mother was working there in that hospital. I actually grew up in Boston before moving to Montreal when I was 10. So uh, I went to high school and university in Montreal. Oh, wow. And started, and started in the film business there. Do yeah. you think that was like a big influence on yourself and your love of movies? Like what kind of exposure did you get? My parents took me to movies and I still remember sitting there in the dark watching, I think it was Cinderella was my first movie, uh, you know, as a kid and being terrified of the Wicked Witch and all of that. But no, I always uh, liked movies. I remember as a teenager... You know, going with my friends to see movies and just being fascinated by it. But, uh, you know, I, I was uh, very interested in art. I, I studied art and uh, was going to be an, an artist until my father, who was a corporate attorney, basically, threatened to disown me unless I got a college degree. And in those days, there were only two... Uh, there were only two film schools in the country. One was Ryerson, which was a, a technical college where if you wanted to learn uh, anything about film, you sort of learned how to load a camera. And then the other was Loyola University, which is now part of Concordia. And that was more theoretical. And, you, you know, you studied the history of film and things like that. And I ended up going to Loyola 
and uh, really enjoying it and getting into it there. You ended up with the Cinepix team, which we could do a whole episode just talking about Cinepix, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh... I actually just did an hour-long interview with a British company about Cinepix. So. <laughs> of course. I mean, they are just such a complex, deep web of like craziness, how they started, how some of the, like our biggest filmmakers came out of that. I mean, you got Reitman, you got Cronenberg, and then you worked with Clark moving on to Porky's. And then, of course, you've done all your American films and all your Canadian films. How have you seen the Canadian film scene sort of grow and change over the years from starting there? You know, people keep talking to me about, you know, you've done so many films, you've got so many stories, you need to do a book. And I, I have actually toyed with the idea, and if I do it, I really want to focus on the early days of Canadian cinema, because it was quite amazing that half of us aren't dead from <laughs> <laughs> the things that we did just to get the movies made. You know, it's uh, it was very amateur. There were people who claimed to know what they were doing on things like special effects and stunts and everything that really had no idea. And we just, oh, you're a stuntman. Okay, fine. I believe you. <laughs> you know, and that type of thing. Or, you know, so-and-so is a special effects man. Why? Because he has a demolition license. <laughs> yeah. So that's fine. We'll just let him hook up squibs to people and see what happens. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Actually, on, on Rabbit, I did the squibs. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. I learned how to do it on Shivers. And then I said, oh, I don't need a special effects guy for this. Oh, man. I can do this. It's just mini explosions next to people's yeah. skin. It's fine. Nine volt battery and a squib, yeah. <laughs> Although you got to be next to Marilyn Chambers on that one, so I'm sure it wasn't too bad. No. <laughs> what do you think defines a filmmaker who we're going to know as a celebrity unto themselves versus someone who's like a journeyman director and is just kind of a go-to call-up guy? You know, I really think it's their passion. All the directors I've worked with that have gone on to make multiple, you know, award-winning or commercially successful movies have all had a passion for storytelling and, and you know, pretty much their own voice. I mean, everything from Denis Villeneuve all the way down to, you know, the early days with David Cronenberg and Bob Clark and what have you. They were the ones that were really passionate about it, were always you know, moving forward with another film that was kind of in the same voice. You know, they didn't pop around a lot. Something that kind of fascinates me is this idea of risk-taking, especially in the early years uh, that you guys were facing. So hearing about, you know, Cronenberg and the whole Shivers Fandango of them getting pulling that up in front of Congress. And uh, as he apparently got evicted because of that film. Do you think that's a component of it? That passion just drives them past any of that? Oh, yeah. When we made uh, Shivers, it was in the early, early days of the Canadian film industry and a, a character called Michael uh, Spencer had just convinced the government to fund the Canadian Development Film Corporation, which is the precursor to telefilm. And based on the premise of, you know, you cannot have a sustaining culture without, you know, uh, a film industry. And uh, he convinced the liberal government at that time to give him some money. And of course, one of the first films that was funded was Shivers, and it created this huge outcry about, you know, it was a pornographic, violent movie with no socially redeeming values. Uh, I forget who the, there was a major critic here in Toronto that just, you know, started a crusade against the movie. In the House of Commons, uh, in the Hansard at the time, you can still read, 
that they were, you know, rallying against us. You know, they basically Ivan Reitman and I, who produced the movies, were, you know, both immigrants. I was American. He was Czech. There were calls for us to be deported. <laughs> and uh, David, they just wanted to lock up in an insane asylum. So <laughs> it was pretty sad. But then, and I tease David now all the time, because we, we act with Cinepix, we had the capacity to, to lead a publicity campaign against it. And I was involved in helping to create that publicity campaign that basically was entitled, Is There a Place in Canadian Cinema for Horror Movies? And we said, hey, that's all part of the industry. And this is what brings up young filmmakers because they're, they're cheap and easy to make and they, uh, they return their, their investment uh, more than, than a lot of art movies. So we eventually prevailed. And now, of course, David's a cultural icon, which I still to this day tease him about because he's <laughs> still in the country. <laughs> Well, I can't help but think about Canada as like the Roger Corman of training grounds, right? Like with Roger Corman, he made things cheap. He made them fast. You had to storyboard absolutely everything. And Canada kind of pushed you through the same thing. You had such limited time and money. You had to storyboard and make sure everything was clear. Do you think that's well, kind of accurate? I, I think you're using Canada as a synonym for Cinefix. Because yes. believe me, it was not that way. And <laughs> outside of Quebec, uh, there wasn't much of an industry the and especially in the bad old days of the tax credits, they were making TV movies that had been turned down six times. And they were, you know, taking uh, investors money to, to make these things as feature films. And many of them never escaped. So there's very few movies from that era that were made outside of Quebec that anybody ever saw. So Yeah, the more I'm learning about this, the more it's like, okay, where did the little pockets of culture sort of pop up? And uh, that actually wants, uh, that actually brings me into one of the movies you chose to talk about, which is Home Again, um, because that was originally meant to film in Jamaica, but they didn't want to give tax credit, so you guys ended up filming in Trinidad, Tobago. How did that go for you? Well, I mean, aside from the Jamaican, uh, the lack of tax credits, we went and scouted there in Jamaica. And when we realized that we would have to pay, a, you know, in essence, a mobster on every corner for their own turf, we realized just how dangerous it was. So we really only did some establishing shots and scenics and, and stuff like that in Jamaica. And Trinidad was much safer. They did have some tax credits and we really had I think it was a good experience. You know, their their industry is young and, and growing. There was a lot of enthusiasm and not a lot of professionalism at the time, but you could see that they cared. So, and, you know, the, the locations worked. It's, um, you know, it, it felt and, and looked like Jamaica and, you know, we had got some great cast. So, you know. I, I thought it worked well, actually. Yeah. Oh, the cast is unbelievable. And I mean, I'm sure most North American viewers who this is, and European viewers who this is mostly aimed at, would not be able to tell the, the actual difference between a corner in Jamaica versus a corner in Trinidad Tobago. And that's movie magic. I've met Jamaican cab drivers. I saw the movie and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, And they tell me they worked on the movie. <laughs> Well, when you're working with a crew that may be fresh, what kind of considerations do you as the producer have to do? Or do you kind of put that along to the co-pro person who's working on the production side that way? Well, no, I mean, you you try and maintain a level of professionalism, even if the, the country you're working with doesn't quite have that level. But part of your job to kind of introduce them to it. 
So we've, you know, I've made movies in Romania and Lithuania and, uh, you know, uh, Bulgaria and places like that were, that were just starting to come out of the Soviet system and that have now all kind of exploded. And uh, they've reached a certain level of uh, professionalism that, in essence, is very much like where Canada was. When I started bringing American movies into Canada, and I was one of the first, you know, we did things differently here. We did a very much similar to the British system, and that was because most of the film uh, guys in uh, in Toronto and Vancouver were all ex-Brits. So, you know, to this day, we use expressions that are typically British, like we call it the window shot, which the Americans call the martini, you know, you know, things like uh, 86 something and all that. It's all British uh, film slang that we adopted. But, you know, uh, when we started bringing American films in here, things changed. We started doing American style call sheets and American style production reports and production things. And it it basically made the Canadian uh, industry look familiar and uh, welcoming to a lot of the American films. And that's why we we do so so many American films, that on top of the fact that, you know, we look like the United States much more than, say, England or or Ireland or wherever. Yeah, our buildings are about the same age. Well, many of them look, you know, when you look at things like Montreal, that was the first city of Canada, and they emulated everything that New York did. Mm-hmm. And Toronto was the second city, and they emulated everything Chicago did. So, <laughs> it goes, but I, look, I've made both cities look like so many other places that they aren't. That it's all grist for the mill. I mean, you think about the X Files, and they made it the entire United States for Vancouver, the entire United States for nine seasons. So you know, yeah. <laughs> well, we do it all the time. And and with that, what do you think the value is of an international co-production versus keeping everything local? Well, it's one of the reasons that I stay in, in uh, based in or have a major base in Canada is the co-production treaties because it allows us to punch above our weight. You know, people are astonished to find out that the Resident Evils are not American movies. They're, you know, German-Canada co-productions. And Silent Hill is a French-Canada co-production, uh, the Silent Hills. And I do other movies that are, you know, uh, Italian-Canadian co-productions like Tulipani and and things like that. So the co-production treaty system, which Canada has 56 partners and growing, uh, and the United States has no co-production treaties with anybody, allows us to punch above our weight. And it's the the secret ingredient to making films in Canada that are much bigger than they would normally be. So something like Home Again, I mean, it has so many intricate weaving plots. It's got a huge cast, all of them very recognizable Canadian actors, yeah. um, and uh-huh. Tatiana Ali. Um, something like that, you would need to do a co-production to be able to get that sort of thing off the ground. Uh, definitely helpful, yeah. Because <laughs> we, you know, we otherwise we wouldn't have been able to get tax credits, which are also important. That, that's the other thing, of course, is that the Canadian system is very supportive in that they do have good tax credits. Now, the Americans have good tax credits in certain states and jurisdictions as well, but we have the support of Telefilm Canada. We have the support of the CMF for television. We have the support of, you know, Ontario Creates or Manitoba Film and Sound or all of these things all add up to helping the Canadian filmmaker get things put together. You know, uh, a lot of uh, young American filmmakers look at the system and drool, wishing they could access it. So 
we shot the bulk of home again was in Trinidad, a little bit in, in Jamaica, and then we did a few days in in Toronto, but we qualified for Canadian tax credits uh, because of the co-production system. You know, I mean, some like uh, Pompeii. Look, the whole thing was shot on a back lot, you know, in Etobicoke. You know, we never, you know, we did some scenics in, in, in Pompeii with no cast or anything, but did it as a, a German-Canadian co-production and qualified. So, you know, it's great. Do you think that uh, Shoot the Messenger, Suds and Jennifer's uh, TV series for CBC, would have been made without Home Again? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, Sud, when I had seen one of Sud's movies, and I thought he was very talented, and I'm always keeping my eye out for, you know, especially since I got into television, keeping my eye out uh, for talented young filmmakers, you know, uh, I had noticed that. So when uh, Jennifer actually approached me with the script, I went, oh yeah, that's the guy from Love, Sex and Eating the Bones. I think he's really good, you know, and I signed on to help him put it together. So interestingly enough, the telefilm had turned them down. Fascinating. So, Is yeah. it just because they didn't see it as too much of a Canadian project at that time or just that it, I, they were concerned? Who knows, right? I, I'm not sure. What it, you know, it's hard to tell. Look, Telefilm also would not put any money into Polytechnique. Oh, boy. And, you know, I rode to the rescue on Polytechnique. I was just astonished that they wouldn't fund this thing. Yeah. So, uh, but they do fund a lot of other stuff. So don't get me wrong. I, you know, I don't know how it works over there. And I've been working with uh, their money and, you know, never going to look a gift horse in the mouth. They're trying to do their best with a limited budget, so they can't approve everything. 100%. And going to Polytechnique, which was the other film you wanted to talk about today, I mean, Villeneuve really wasn't well known at that point. I mean, Maelstrom was his biggest hit, which was very yeah. weird, but absolutely beautiful. So you get this script on your desk. Is this how this works? You get the script on your desk, but it's so visually specific. How did you know what this was going to look like? And how did you know what it was going to be? Well, I met with Denis. The original script was, you know, fairly normal length. I think it was about 120 pages. It was very well written. There was a ton of, uh, of passion behind the, uh, the project, not only from uh, Denis, but uh, from Karine Vanasse, who not only starred in the movie, but she was one of the producers and the driving force, really. So when I came on board, uh, you know, uh, she and uh, Denis convinced me. I mean, you know, it was her, maybe even more than Denis. The passion was so strong about it. And I'll tell you a story is that Denis, uh, he sent, after the filming was over, he did his cut. The cut was, you know, two and a half hours long or something. And uh, he wouldn't show it to anybody. Hmm. And he said, I've got a problem with it. It's not ready. Give me some time. I'm going to, you know, to work on it. And then he turned in a cut that was 76 minutes long. <laughs> I said, Denise, this is all very good, but where's the rest of the movie? You know, because all of our deals, you know, you have, usually you have to deliver something that's at least 90 minutes or 85 minutes or something like that. So I'm looking at a movie that's 77 minutes long going, how the heck do we sell this? But he convinced uh, us that uh, it was the best possible movie 
that he could make for it. And quite frankly, because it was so intense, it didn't need to be longer. So it was interesting to see that process. Every director I've ever worked with wants it to be longer, and I have to beg them to cut the damn movie down. <laughs> this is the only time I've had to beg a director to put something back in. See, I agree wholeheartedly, because I think, you're right, a lot of directors do get too overindulgent, but going back to someone like Cronenberg, and I think about A History of Violence, that movie, I think, is like 80 minutes. Like, it's super short and super tight, but, like, you think of everything that happens in it at that pace. Same as Polytechnique. That's all you can sit through, and that's, like, you feel like no time has passed at all, like all the best movies. Yeah, so, no, definitely there, but, you know, and the same thing was, uh, I did, you know, five movies with Sidney Lumet, over the years, you know, Sidney was so precise in his filmmaking that if you wanted to make the movie longer, you couldn't. Yeah. Because he only shot what he needed and he only used what he had. So, you know, and he used every bit of it. So, you know, and uh, there again is one of the most passionate filmmakers I've ever worked with. Do you think the transfer from, from analog to digital film makes it so that directors can be more self-indulgent in that way? And do you think like more restrictions are put on because of the analog film and the cost? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, quite frankly, it's. I never thought I'd, I'd make anything in digital. I thought, you know, film would last until I was ready to hang it up, but you know, that didn't happen. No, I mean, the one thing that makes me crazy, and especially in television, is because nobody gets cut anymore. Just do it again. Go again. Do it again. It's like, for God's sake, shut the ca camera off. Have a conversation with your cast and tell them what you want. <laughs> you know, do it again with no explanation. You know, what does that achieve? But, you know, and because it doesn't cost any more digitally, I mean, you know, it costs a little bit to, to you know, in, in rendering time, that's about it. But it isn't like the old days whereby I could stand beside a director and I knew it was costing a dollar a minute, you know. And as we rolled, I go, at $1, $2, $3, I mean, it's a dollar a second, I should say, you know, and it taught them to, what's the word I'm looking for? Like more efficient? Yeah, 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 and more efficient. You didn't waste time. Yeah. You know, and of course, having made movies with some great filmmakers who are from the old school of live television, like Sidney Lumet, Frank Shafter, like uh, Norman Jewison, et cetera, these guys all went through uh, live television. They didn't waste time or money, you know, it's one take, two takes. Let's move on. Using uh, television as a training ground, I'd like to bring us into uh, Quebec and their filmmaking technique because they have an unbelievable television system there, especially their procedurals. Like their crime procedurals are amazing. Why do you think it is that Hollywood is now finding all of these incredible Quebecois directors, uh, Jean-Marc Ballet, Villeneuve, um, Ken Scott? Like wh why, why are these people popping up and why are they finding them now? Well, they made good movies. There's an amazing amount of passion in uh, Quebec, because they are their own closed system, you know, they're interested, they're not interested in, you know, hitting home runs. They're not interested in entertaining a mass audience. They're interested in entertaining an audience of, you know, three to four million people and with no competition, uh, basically. And even the French France movies that come in there don't do as well as uh, Quebecois movies generally. So, They've been working in that system, which allows them to, A, do their own thing. There's a lot of uh, cineast there. There's, you know, uh, many of these directors are, are writer directors or work very much with 
their chosen writer without any kind of input from producers or whatever. As much as the English community is sustained by the telefilms and Ontario creates, nothing like there exists in uh, Quebec with SODAC and, uh, you know, the various uh, film re funding regimes. And it's not only for feature films, but for television as well. I mean, we have three major networks here in English Canada that basically pay lip service to Canadian content. You've got five major networks in Quebec, and they all have to create and want to create uh, Quebecois content. So it's a terrific training ground, you know? Yeah, and they make uh, things that really emphasize the visual and the plot, and you just have a marrying of every component. It's not just a pretty spectacle. And it tends to be dark. I mean, the, the crime scene in, in Montreal, which is getting a lot of, you know, Fred now for 1219 and some of these other shows, you know, it was it was very dark, very violent. And for years, you know, I mean, when people talked about the Canadian mafia, they didn't mean Toronto. They meant Montreal. Mm -hmm. So and, uh, you know, you have the Hells Angels and uh, all those other motorcycle gangs all there. It's, uh, you know, was uh, until Jean Drapeau, Montreal was the you know dirtiest city in North America. And they are not return, uh, referring to the cleanliness of the streets. It's just how everything worked. We were watching uh, Devil Up My Heels for the podcast a little while ago and uh, the Ken Carter and the Mad Canadian jump. And they talk about the investors in quotes. And it's like, oh, he's totally being financed by the mob. There's no question. <laughs> but they can't say it. But yeah, it's one of those things where you don't realize how deeply embedded it was. And no one's really making movies about that, which would be a, a great movie. No, no, no. And I learned how to drive in Quebec. And, you know, one of the first things I was taught was you wrapped your driver's license in a uh, $10 bill. Oh. So when you were pulled over, you just pulled it out and handed it to the the officer. Oh, I'm sorry if he handed it back. I didn't realize that was there. <laughs> <laughs> We've got so many movies about Skid Row, New York. It feels, why aren't we doing movies about Skid Row, Montreal? This is great. Yeah. So speaking of the danger aspect to it, um, I know you apparently received death threats when you were doing Resident Evil and Silent Hill. Oh, uh, Silent Hill. Yeah. I mean, Resident Evil, there's always been a small, they're crazy. I mean, the fans who play the game, you know, they were always, you know, poo-pooing and, and don't you dare do this and whatever. They all go to the movie though. You yeah. Know? But Silent Hill, when we, when they found out that we were changing the gender of the lead character from a father to a mother, oh my God. That was crazy. <laughs> That's fascinating to me because it seems like it's something that shouldn't matter. And you've got these two films that we're talking about, uh, Polytechnique and Home Again, and they are dealing with very serious real-world issues, one of them specifically dealing with misogyny. Um, did you have any backlash on either of those in the same way you did with video games? No, no. Um, I, I had heard there was some uh, misogynistic stuff happening you know, online regarding Polytechnic, but uh, I never actually saw it. And I, I don't really pay a lot of attention on those serious movies to the, uh, the, the social media. I mean, you know, you talk about backlash. I mean, you know, my television series, Shadowhunters, oh my God, when, you know, people found out it was not going beyond a third season. Holy Jesus. <laughs> it was like insanity. You know, you think they like we had, you know, you know, blown up the Vatican. It was, 
nuts. But uh, yeah, no, I, I had heard there was some pushback on uh, the Polytechnique side, but on Home Again, my biggest reaction that I received people that said, we had no idea this was going on. We had no idea that we were sending back, you know, people who came to Canada or Britain or, you know, the United States as kids uh, and deporting them because of some small crime and sending them back to a land they never knew where they were treated as criminals. So uh, that was what I felt the story that needed to be told uh, on Home Again. And I know when I read the script, I went, I've never heard of this. I can't believe this happens. And it happens every day and still happens. So when you're finding that balance on some stuff that you want to invest in and uh, and help create, um, how much do you take into account the story that you feel like it needs to be told versus how much it's going to make in the box office? Well, again, it's like I'm willing to take a much bigger chance on a much smaller movie, you know, because you're not risking millions and millions of dollars. So both Home Again and Polytechnique were made on very reasonable budget levels, you know, um, Whereas, you know, the Resident Evils and Silent Hills, they cost a lot of money. So we have to be looking to hit the uh, commercial uh, zeitgeist, you know. And then I have other ones that, uh, you know, are made for low budget, like the Boondock Saints. I made those movies for very little money, and uh, they actually never had a theatrical release, but became huge on DVD or streamers or, or whatever. So I make a lot of movies that actually find their audience not at the uh, theatrical box office, but later, you know, kind of with people find the movie and, and word of mouth builds and, and, you know, people find it that way. I mean, it's always surprising to me when I'll get emails uh, or letters years and years after some of these movies are released telling me how much they enjoyed them. And, you know, they're telling all their friends and their friends are discovering them now. So, and, you know, I get my, you know, my reports and, uh, you know, it's like on, on the Boondock Saints, you know, my director and I, we looked and go, what the hell happened this month? All of a sudden, there's all this money. And it's, you look and it's like, all of a sudden, Germany discovered the movie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and all these DVD sales out of Germany or, you know, Australia or whatever. So it's interesting. I do have to ask you before I let you go. This is my fangirl moment because I love this movie, unironically, so much. I love your movie, The Surrogate. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That was as a result, I made a movie called Space Hunters. Yes. And the original director, who was a young Quebecois director, froze at the switch on the first day of filming. Jeez. And uh, I mean, literally went almost catatonic and had to be replaced. We shut down for a few days. The studio was Columbia Pictures. And they said, we have the perfect director for you. He just became available. He wants to do it. And, you know. His name's Lamont Johnson. So I went, Lamont Johnson? You know, the movie was in 3D, and it was one of the first feature films in, you know, this new system of 3D. Lamont only had one eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. As I'm, as I'm picking up to the airport, I go, Lamont, because I noticed there's something weird. You know, and I'd worked with Andre Link for many, many years, and Andre was actually an exec producer on it, and Andre only had one eye, so... I said, Lamont, I, I got to ask you a question. You only have one eye, right? He said, yeah. And like seemed to be upset. And I said, well, how are you going to see the 3D? What do you mean? I said, well, you need two eyes to see 3D. No, I don't. <laughs> 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 so, 
anyway, he came out and he hated 3D because he couldn't see it. He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. And he was just like a miserable old cuss the entire movie, you know. And he had done some great movies, don't get me wrong, but this was not going to be one of his, uh, you know, bellwethers. And uh, I was so frustrated with the experience that I said, shit, I can do this. You know, and I, Ivan had gone from producing to directing and other, you know, producers I knew had sort of made the move. And I said, I'm going to do this. So I, I had always been writing. So I wrote the script. I went to Cinepix. And they said, oh, we love this. Let's let's make it. And I said, well, okay, but here's the deal. I direct it. And they were like, oh, well, I'm sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> so all these movies, go ahead. You know, that movie was really a training ground for me. And I think many directors that I worked with afterwards have to be very thankful I made it because I've been much nicer to directors ever since. <laughs> Well, something that makes it so great is the cast. I mean, Art Hindle said you just called him up and was like, hey, Art, what you doing? You want to come do this? And then you got Mike Ironside. You got Shannon Tweed. You got Carol Lohr. Uh, Jackie Burroughs, who's one of my favorites, is in it. Like, that cast is insane. Yeah, it was great. Well, I knew them all. You know, and had worked with them all previously at different times. You know, Art was in the, the Porkies. He was a friend. And we played golf together. And, you know, uh, Shannon, I knew her husband uh, from Kiss and all of that. So, um it was uh, good, but it was also one of the toughest things I ever did. You know, I was <laughs> exhausted most of the time. You know, <laughs> it's like you don't know what a director goes through until you direct, and you literally are making split-second decisions, uh, sixty minutes uh, an hour, and uh, all day long. So it's quite draining intellectually as well as uh, emotionally. And I had a terrific crew. So, yeah, but it, it really, it basically convinced me that I was not a director, <laughs> but I learned what directors do. And I've been much better to work with as a producer ever since, I think. And you're a damn good producer, and we're very lucky to have you as our liaison. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. I know you're very busy, Don, so I will let you go. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.